0: All right, guys, we're going to get into John chapter 12. Before we do that, let me open in prayer for us. Father, we have before us such an amazing passage of Scripture that is so rich and so deep, God. I feel like tonight I'm kind of just skimming the surface, but I just ask you, Spirit of God, go beyond my feeble words and really speak to our hearts by your Spirit, by the power and authority of your Spirit. Father, be, your te- be our teacher tonight and take these words of truth and plant them and impress them upon our spirit that we would be bold, that we would live this out, this extravagant lifestyle of devotion to Jesus. And I ask you, Father, as you paint a picture for us through this story, God, may we, may we just may we lay hold of that, God, lay hold of these truths and run hard to be able to live this out. Just what we read, live it out in this day, in this age. Help us, God, to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. So, a pastor tells the Sunday school class teacher that he's going to be visiting the next week. So, the Sunday school teacher preps the class and says, Okay, the pastor's going to come by next week. And he's going to ask you, first thing, what are you grateful for? And so, Johnny, here's your job. When he asks that question, Johnny, you immediately raise your hand and say, God made me. All right? That's your job. Can you do it? And Johnny says, yes, I think I'm ready. He walks him through a few other things and dismisses the class. And so the very next week, the pastor comes in and he says, gang, I've been so looking forward to getting together with you guys. And I do this every year. And I just want to start by asking the question, what are you grateful for? And there's silence. No one speaks. And he says again, what are you grateful for? And no one says anything. And finally, after several minutes, a little girl raises her hand and says, the boy that God made is sick today. (laughs) So apparently there's a story told that Rudyard Kipling uh, was worth, that every single word that he wrote was worth 10 shillings. Now, I don't know what that, I tried looking that up and I, ah, uh, whatever. And so some college students got together and they sent 10 shillings in the mail to him. I guess back in the day you could send money in the mail, right? And they asked him, Mr. Rudyard Kipling, we have heard that you are worth, that your words are worth 10 shillings apiece. So we would, we're sending you 10 shillings and we're just asking you, give us a word. Give us your absolute very best word. And he writes back and he says, thanks. So, a columnist recently, because this is kind of well known among, you know, writing nerds, and so this columnist writes to 30 authors, 30, no, excuse me, 30 well known people, and says, here's a dollar. Here's a dollar. I want you to give me your best word. And he's getting some words back. And then finally, 15 of the 30 respond. This particular person is a crime thriller author. And he returned the one dollar with the following note. I was going to write, thanks, and keep the buck. However, upon close examination, I've come to the conclusion that it, the dollar, is entirely too clean bright and pressed to be authentic and therefore have concluded that you wish to put me in jail for passing counterfeit money nice try pal that was a crime thriller off you didn't and anyway right right you know when people do nice things for us we want to say thank you we're going to read a story tonight, and it is so over the top with a thank you. You have to step, by, step back and, and wonder, what? It's jarring when you truly understand what's going. If you were there, you would almost be horrified. Like what? This is beyond believable, and yet it happened. And it stands out, and this story is told in John, Matthew, and Mark. Luke has an anointing of Jesus, and that's what this is about. But it's a different anointing, a different woman, and for a different reason. But it is nevertheless to say, Jesus, here, I love you. And that's what we're going to read today. This is a story about Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anointing Jesus. Follow with me, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume... She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Judas just can't wrap his mind around this. The Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. I just have to say, wow. For the last several chapters, Jesus has been both saying and doing things, very specific things, actions and words, that are purposefully divisive. And these divisive words and actions, like raising Lazarus from the dead, or healing a blind man on the Sabbath, Jesus purposely did these things, said certain things like, the reason why you don't believe me is because... The Father's not drawing you. And then the reason why you don't believe me and you don't believe my miracles is because you're just not my sheep who listen to me and follow me. That's your problem. And these, these words just divide them. And what it's, what's happening here is that it's challenging them. And some of them, they're stepping back in anger and they're just saying, no. Last chapter, after G- Lazarus was raised from the dead, some of the Jews went and told the Pharisees, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, that would be the Jewish ruling council, and said, hey, look what this Jesus guy is doing Yeah, you think you're going to quiet him? Not going to happen. So many people are following after them. How would they know this? Because some of the other Jews who witnessed this resurrection as well placed their faith in Jesus. Guys, I don't know how you can watch a dead man be raised from the dead and want to throw that guy under the bus. I don't know how you can come to that conclusion. There is something that is so wrong and disturbed in the heart. And yet, church, this is a perfect picture of the world. This is a very perfect picture of those who live in antagonism to Christ. That is our culture. Jesus is not popular in our culture. And the only way he is popular in our culture is if you water him down. Is if you make him into somebody he is not. Because that's at least palpable. But the Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. Oh, goodness, Jesus, really. Let me read between the lines. What you really mean to say is, and we reword what Jesus is trying to say. Christians do this all the time. Because Jesus' words are divisive. He did not come to bring, a sword, bring peace, he came to bring a sword. Meaning, he came to bring that division. Truth divides. You want to live in a fearful day? And that's when everybody is saying, oh, isn't that nice, that's so true. Yes, about truth. Because that tells me they don't understand the truth. Truth will necessarily divide because of its nature. And because of our nature. And so this is what Jesus is doing. Raising Lazarus from the dead was actually one of the last things that pulled the trigger on the Jews, the, lead, the Jewish leaders, saying, we got to do something about this guy. We have to kill him. And so they're actually, right at the end of chapter 3, they've decided they're going to do this. Jesus as you look by the way over here in verse 54 it says therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews those are the ones some of them are believing but what's the other part doing church they want to kill him they're plotting to kill him anyway that's the conclusion that they just came to instead he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples He's kind of hanging out there. Remember, the resurrection of Lazarus takes place sometime between Hanukkah and Passover. That is sometime between December and, let's say, April. Sometimes, sometimes Hanukkah is a little earlier. Sometimes Passover is a little earlier, later. But it's generally, they're generally about four months apart. So this raising of Lazarus takes place then. Jesus, after the resurrection of Lazarus, realizes what's going on and his time. That is, the time for the good shepherd to lay his life down for the sheep is at hand. So he, he he gets out of the picture, at least for a short weeks, months, we don't know exactly how long. And then he comes to Jerusalem. On his way to Jerusalem, there is a road that goes west from the Jordan, goes west, and you come to Bethany about a mile and a half to two miles. From Jerusalem, from Bethany then, you would come to Bethphage, which is right at the foot of the Mount of Olives. You go over the Mount of Olives, and then you go down the Mount of Olives and ascend into Jerusalem. Just to give you kind of a geographical picture there. Mm -hmm. This day... When Jesus arrives in Bethany, it says it's six days before the Passover. That means since Passover, that year fell on Friday. See, Passover doesn't always fall on Friday. That year it did. That year, as John says, it fell on preparation day. Now You're, you're going to read about that in later chapters. John calls it preparation day. That basically means the day before the Sabbath, which will be Friday, which is Passover. And so, Six days would land it on Saturday. So they arrive in Bethany on Saturday. The very next day is what we commonly celebrate as Palm Sunday. Just to give you a little picture, we're not sure if it's that night, Saturday night, or if John is inserting this picture so that if you were to read there in verse 12, the next day, it doesn't mean the next day after the party, but rather the next day after he arrives. Okay, we're not exactly sure what, because the other two Gospels, Matthew and Mark, that record this very same account, they, they, they focus on it from a different angle, of course. They say it happens Tuesday night, or, or at least they say it happens, and, and the way they, the, where they place it, it would seem it's on Tuesday night. But again, it could be an insertion. So we're not exactly sure. Does it happen Saturday night or Tuesday night? So here's my view on it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is what happened. Here's what happened. As they're gathered, Matthew and Mark tell us it's in a man's house by the name of Simon the leper. It's John who says that this is a special occasion to honor Jesus. Matthew and Mark don't tell us that. But let me ask you. If you went to a party and it was hosted by Simon the leper you would either say, Simon the leper? I'm not going to have a meal with that guy. Are you kidding? And there would be obvious reasons why. So he obviously has been healed. And guess who probably did it? Jesus more than likely healed Simon the leper. Simon the leper lives in Bethany. He's, have, he's hosting this party. But John wants to focus on the very fact that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are attending this honorary dinner party. And Jesus is the focus of this honor. Lazarus, (laughs) he is so in tune with his feet. (laughs) Yes, he is. Lazarus is, is, he's just been raised from the dead. The word has been spreading, church, like wildfire. John focuses on the reason why they ultimately crucified Jesus like it came to a culmination. John's focus is the resurrection of Lazarus. The synoptic gospels tend to focus on the cleansing of the temple. That was to them like over the top. Now John doesn't talk about that particular cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry during Passion Week, which would be Monday morning. He instead focuses on the cleansing that took place in the beginning of his ministry. So for John, his focus is this resurrection of, see, they're both right. It was the resurrection of Lazarus. It was the cleansing of the temple. Both of them escalated things. And the Pharisees were like, this this has to happen. It has to happen this week. They plotted. Judas came to them. They plotted together. They have a plan. And now they're going to arrest him. And their goal is to crucify him. They accomplished their task, as we read later. John, again, he's focusing on the resurrection of Lazarus. And so he talks about Lazarus, Mary, and Martha being there. Martha, of course, what do you think she's doing? Martha's the serving. Mary, remember, what does she do in that little story? This is in Luke 9. It's Martha that's serving, and it's Mary, and what is she doing? She is hanging out, sitting at Jesus' feet, like, this is amazing stuff. And you remember this story, Martha gets up, Jesus, tell her, she needs to help serve, come on. And, and Jesus basically says, you know what? What's the most important thing right now is not all that you're doing. Though he's so grateful for what Martha's doing, but the most important thing, the most important is sitting at my feet and learning and just being in my presence. I'm not here forever, guys. Well, of course, they don't know that. So here, Mary... Martha's serving, Lazarus is there, he's at the table. And remember, when they're at these types of tables, they don't sit at a table like this on a chair eating their meal, putting their bib in, dabbing their mouth. You know, that's not how they do it. The table is low to the ground generally. The feet are away from the table or they're on their side. They have big cushions here that they're leaning on. And this generally is how they would partake of a meal. And so when it says that she anointed his feet, it's because his feet are sticking out towards the back. They're not tucked under. Don't picture her crawling under the table and kind of pouring the ointment and wiping her feet. And and then somebody who doesn't see her sees her poking her head up like, Whoa, where'd you come from? It's not like that. She comes in and it's very obvious. Everybody sees what Mary is doing. What is Mary doing? Well, first of all, the synoptics, Matthew and Mark, say that Mary, but they don't give her name, they just say a woman, anointed Jesus' head. John says she anointed his feet. It's not that they contradict church. She did both. She has enough an ointment to do both but the synoptics want to focus on the head because when you anoint the head, that's like a very special honor. Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. Well, she uses perfume, an extremely expensive perfume we'll get to in a moment. And so this is what you would do to honor a guest. You would anoint the head. So... John wants to focus on something different. And I want to ask the question, why does John focus on the fact that Mary anoints the feet? She did both, but why does John want to focus on the feet? See, this flask holds a, almost a pint. At the amount that they give here, what they call a litra, literally is about 12 ounces. So it's about three-fourths of a pint. So to say about a pint... That's what we're saying here. Now, it's constructed where the, the top is, is a bottleneck. And the only way to really open this is to break off. It's not glass, but to break off this pottery and then to pour it out. So if you break it open, it's not like you used a, little, a few drops. You have to use the entire thing. You can't put the top back on. So as soon as she breaks this open, you can almost imagine, what is in... And then they smell it, and they know exactly what this is. It doesn't have this little label on it that says, Alabaster of Spikenard, or Nard. The amount that she uses... Judas says is worth 300 denarii, which, and a denarii is about a day's worth of wages. So that's why it says about a year. So just about a year, 300, 365. But you understand what he's saying. Can I just ask you, have you ever gone out, guys, have you ever gone out and bought your wife some special perfume? You ever do that? My wife likes this kind of perfume. It's called Beautiful. Now, to me, I thought it was kind of expensive. It was like 50 to 70 bucks for just a little bit. And I'm just like, wow, this stuff's expensive. I'm sure there's like all all kinds of perfume that's like so much more. That's this right here. You just kind of imagine how much do you make in a year? Is it 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 a year, 75,000, 100,000, 150,000? I could keep going maybe for some of you. I don't know, but. Yeah, if you make more than that, come see me afterwards. The truth, though, is that a, a year's wages, wow. So whatever you make in a year, that is about how much she saved up. Now understand, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they probably come from a ra- rather well-to-do family. But still, a year's wages, what is that to you? That's a lot of money. I want you to just think, see, here's how I think. When I think of expenses, I don't think about the money. I think about how many days does it take me to work to earn that. And it makes that that so much more valuable to me. Because I, I worked for this. But can you imagine working an entire year, taking all of that money, say you've saved it, and you buy this little dinky thing of perfume. Once you buy it, you're wondering... This is for a very special occasion. I've heard that it would many times be given to a woman as a dowry gift when she gets married. Is that what Mary's holding it for? We don't read about a husband, so maybe she is. We don't know. But a year's wages? And she spends that year's wages in just a few minutes. Wow. Wow, it takes longer to buy a car with that much money than a few minutes, just so you know. <coughs> but it's worth a year's wages. <coughs> Excuse me. Please understand, why is she doing it? Because once she breaks that neck, she's, she's going to need to use all of it. So she spends all of this Anointing Jesus' head, but John focuses on the feet. Why on earth is she doing this? I want you to think of something that someone has done for you, like the most blessed thing that they have ever done for you. And I, I could, there's, there's many things, but one of the things that for some reason it touched me, and it touched me very emotionally and when my wife first heard me tell the story, she was shocked because she had not heard about how it affected me. But for a year before we got married, she and her grandmother, we called her Beezy, they made a quilt. So all of these, this patchwork with a backing, of course, sewn all together, and it took them a year. And it was big. Okay, it covered, easily covered a queen-size bed. And, and my wife and I have chosen to, we, we, we've used a queen-size bed like forever, okay? And so it, it easily covered that. That's how big this was. And I remember opening, I'm like, what is this? Is this a coat? We live in, we, we were living in Phoenix, Arizona at the time, so I'm just thinking, can't be a coat. Open it up, and it's this quilt. And she says, yes. Now, while you, because Beezy lived three miles from where I was born and raised, in Wilmington, Delaware. Very providential. Meredith's grandmother, that's where she lived. Meredith was born and raised in South Florida. So she was going to school there at University of Delaware, just 30 minutes from me, and so I, I would take her to her grandmother's, and so many, many times I would just spend most of my weekend there studying and this kind of stuff, and... But there were times in which I weren't there, and that was the time when she and Beezy would get together and work very diligently. When I got it, I just thought about it, and it, I was emotionally overcome. It was, it was such a precious gift. It was beautiful, but it was such a precious gift to me. And we use that blanket so much, it has become tattered. So we have folded it up. It's in the, one of the linen closets in our second uh, upstairs. And we tuck it away, and we just don't use it. It's like every now and then we might get it out to look at it, and that's it. And I just remember how it impacted me. What, who has done something for you that you just, wow, it really touched you? Jesus did this. For Mary and Martha. Their brother had been sick. And being the type of sisters that they were. They doted on him. Wondering. Trying to nurse him back to health. And they did everything they could. To nurse him back to health. And he still died. They sent someone to go get Jesus. And he waited two days. Once he heard the news. And even if he got there. We did the math. He still would have been dead two days. Regardless. Dead four days. And there, this is. It's it. Lazarus is gone. We're gonna, Jesus isn't here to heal him. This is it. And Jesus raises him from the dead. What an amazing gift. Now understand, John's focus throughout this book is to share with them that they would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that by believing, they may have life in his name, John twenty thirty That is the theme of this entire book. This book is about life. We just learned two chapters earlier, Jesus says, I didn't just come to give you life, but to, to, that you would have abundant life. I want you to go into these pastures, these green pastures, and by the still waters, and I want me as the good shepherd to restore your soul. I have so much in store for you, but that included death. That included things that are so hard, tragedies, that God purposefully allows to end the way they do. It feels ...that they end anyway. But see, Jesus was not done. And I just want to remind you... ...what I told you last week... Whatever tragedy, whatever hardship, whatever struggle you're going through, it might feel final because tragedy feels this way. But it is not the end, church. God always promises, always promises that he's going to take all of these things. He's going to intricately, sovereignly, powerfully work them together to bring about the ultimate good for you and his great glory. He promises this. And this is what he did for Lazarus. Now for Lazarus... He actually raised him from the dead. Wow. If you were his sister, you would have been bawling your eyes out. Not just because he had died, and she was, but now that he's raised from the dead, so filled with joy. God, I can't... Jesus, you did this. You did this. He's alive. I have my brother back. Now, I'm going to suggest just in piecing a few things together, that these three are not old people. They're not. I'm going to guess that Jesus has probably known them for a while, maybe family, friends. That is some speculation. But there's a few things that I'm not going to get into that lead me to that conclusion. Regardless, that would mean Lazarus still has many more years ahead. What a gift, church. What a blessing. And Mary, she's, she's just thinking, ah, Jesus is like everything. Everything. He really is the resurrection and the life. I mean, church, think about that. Jesus didn't say, I have resurrection power and I have life. He could have said that, but he didn't. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am. I mean, Jesus could have said, I will raise this person from the dead. But Jesus is saying, I am that power. That's me. He could have said, I I, I can do this. I can bring someone to life. But Jesus was the one who at the very beginning of creation breathed life into Adam and he became a living soul. That was Jesus. That was Yahweh. That was Jesus. That's who this is. He's not just the one who gives life. He is life. And if we just contemplate that a little bit, well, now here is Mary, and she wants to honor him. They're there to honor him. No doubt, I would venture to say, because he healed Simon the leper. I mean, see, when you're a leper, you live outside town. You cannot be inside town. If you ever come near to get food, you have to you, you have to cry out, unclean. Unclean, just so people would recognize, I need to stay away. It's not like they were these horrible people. Though imagine the Pharisees thought, so I mean, why would you have leprosy if you didn't sin, right? But the truth is, it was for health reasons. Unclean, unclean. Simon is living in the city. He has his own house. Jesus has restored his life to him and he is so grateful so he's holding this party to honor Jesus and Mary does this amazingly extravagant thing. And so here she is she's pouring this perfume worth what is it 30,000 50,000 100,000 150,000 do I hear 200,000 dollars worth of perfume expensive spikenard That, as I understand, probably came from India. So it's it's worth a lot. It had to travel a far distance just to be traded and bought in Israel. And she pours all of it, not some, all of it. Church, this is radical devotion. Do you see it? It's a picture of devotion. It's not just simply saying thank you, Jesus. It is saying, this little thing of flask of expensive perfume what, $100,000, that's nothing. You, Jesus, are worth more than this. If I had five of them in a New York second, which is faster, by the way, than most seconds. In a New York second, I would decide I'm going to break all of them and pour them over Jesus. And, and one for us... Can you imagine taking $100,000 and spending it in just seconds to honor someone? Wow. That's what she did. So I'm going to ask you, why does John, if you were to look there in verse 3, why does John tell us that not only does she pour it on Jesus' feet, but now she undoes her hair and she wipes his feet with her hair? For a woman to undo her hair in public was considered undignified. You you just didn't do that. You would do that in the privacy for your husband, but you wouldn't do that in public. And it's not necessarily a lewd expression. It's just that, hey, we just don't do that here. And wow, this... Was just looked down. You just didn't do this. So she humbled herself to undo her hair. And now she uses her hair to wipe his feet. Spread this perfume all over her, his feet. Can I just tell you something? Most feet, and I'm going to say even Jesus' feet, were dirty feet. Dirty, disgusting feet. Dirty, disgusting, and smelly feet. Those were Jesus's feet. Okay, when God decided to become human, I can only imagine Jesus just asking, "Father, do I have to have feet like they all do? Do I really?" "Yes, you do, Jesus, because that's how I made them, remember? Or that's how you made them." <laughs> okay, I'm just playing with you. The truth though is that Jesus's feet were dirty. Now, it's possible that they washed the feet, but it okay, they're not like real clean, but they're maybe a little bit cleaner. We don't know anything about them washing feet. That may have happened, but the truth is Jesus' feet were still dirty. And she is taking her hair and she is wiping this perfume all over with her hair. Her hair is absorbing this perfume and getting completely dirty. How humbling is this? How sacrificial is this? You know, for my wife, if you ever see my wife's hands... My wife has beautiful hands. I love holding her hand and just sometimes looking at it and putting her hand between both of mine. They're very smooth. She has very elegant. They're long, slender fingers. She has beautiful fingernails. She hates, she detests, she entirely loathes, as the Grinch would say, working with dirt because she's going to get dirt in her fingernails. Is any other ladies, you hate doing this because you're going to have to now spend minutes, maybe even an hour, cleaning out your fingernails with your, with your truck keys, right? Okay, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so you're going to have to clean your fingernails, and then they just don't like doing that. And so my wife, if she ever worked near soil, she would always put gloves on. But it's really hard to dig in soil with gloves. So she generally is not considered a gardener in our house. I do the dirty work. See, I bite my nails. My wife manicures them. I bite my nails. I usually don't do that after I've worked on the car or dug in the soil, just so you know. But the truth is, yeah, she takes great care of her hands. Can you imagine a woman with long hair? It takes a while to wash that hair. Now she is wiping Jesus' dirty feet. This is, what she is doing is humbling. What she's doing would be considered undignified. Jesus is worth all of that and more. All of that and more. Mark and Matthew have Jesus saying, John just leaves this out, has Jesus saying in response to Judas, in response to Judas' comment about why was this used? I mean, this is expensive. We could have, we could have given it to the poor. Jesus, no, really, Judas, what you mean is we could have put it into the bag and you could have stolen it. That's what you really mean, because you didn't care about the poor. You were a thief. Martha, Mary is the servant, eager to learn, humbled. Judas is a thief. He just wants money. He wants to betray Jesus, and Mary wants to honor Jesus and express this just undignified, over-the-top, extravagant devotion to Jesus. Everyone is like... In, in the Matthew and Mark say the disciples were wondering, oh my goodness, what's happening? Judas is finally the one who, who says, hey, you know, we should have used this for the poor, don't you think? I mean, it sounded good, didn't it? Yeah, you know his motive. So here is Mary. And Matthew and Mark say... put they record Jesus' response to all of this as what John records, plus this story will be told everywhere the gospel is preached. I mean, I just, I thought about this this past week and I'm just thinking about it. Why doesn't John want to tell us that? I mean, wow, the the gospel, John's like all about the gospel. I'm going to suggest that he actually does. But as John does... He usually, many times, he doesn't just come out and say something, he uses a picture to say it. I want you to just look in this passage now. I want you to look in this passage. I'm going to give you just a, I'm going to keep talking. I want you to kind of scan through it quickly because I don't want to talk too long about this. But I want you to look in there where do you think John uses a picture to talk about this story being told everywhere the gospel goes? The gospel is. Is many times referred to that which brings life to people. It is the sweet smelling aroma of Christ. Did you find it yet? And so, what John tells us is the fragrance of this perfume filled. The, house. the synoptics don't tell us this, but it filled the house. I want you to imagine, you are in the kitchen, and you're you're baking, you're cooking, you're a chef. You probably have a couple of other servants working with you who are skilled in this. There's at least 12 disciples. There's Jesus, there's Simon, there's Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and they probably have a little bit of money. So you want to make sure you really cook a good meal, because after all, they're going to talk to the Gazette about this, and they're going to probably... Re- okay, I'm just kidding. So here they are. They're in the kitchen, and they're cooking, And they, whoa, I know what that is. And you can only imagine them thinking to themselves, who is using this perfume? So it has such a distinctive odor. And so they go out there. You can just imagine the people who are cooking the meal, those who are serving. They stop what they're doing. They all come into the room. Why? Because the aroma fills the house. If there are any guests upstairs, they smell it. They come downstairs. They all want to know where is the smell coming from? Why am I smelling it? Because this is like super expensive perfume. And there they all see Mary. And what is she doing? She is giving this radical, over-the-top, extravagant demonstration of devotion to Jesus. And this is, in my opinion, I think this is how John is telling us. This is what happens. Everywhere the gospel preached, this story is going to be told. Why? Because the heart of the gospel, the response that God is looking for is this radical, extravagant devotion to Jesus Christ and nothing less. This is not the gospel that's usually preached in American churches. That it just says, hey, you know what? God just accepts you the way you are, which is a truth, by the way, church. You just need to come to the altar. It's not about... turning your back on your past, he can look over that. Jesus is just here and he wants to give you love. He wants to give you joy. He wants to mend your life. See, all of these things are true except Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you everything because that's what devotion to me is. You're, You're addicted to this? Well, you need to be willing to turn your back on that to follow me. Can you do that? Now allow the spirit as he comes in you to empower you to say no to the addiction. But we're turning our back on the stuff of the world. That is the picture of what butter baptism is all about, by the way. The old man, not my dad, the old man, the old me is crucified. That's what happens when I give my heart to Christ. I'm saying I am turning my back on the world. And I am following Christ. That church... Is costing you everything. Your old life. That's done. That's, that is the old life. And I am now pursuing Jesus. I was addicted to my sin. I was a slave to my sin. I was dead in my sin. And I am turning to Jesus. And his spirit comes in me. And life revives me. We call it regeneration. Praise God. This is the gospel. And it happens... When we, like Mary, say, Jesus, you're my everything. I, I, I give you my everything. I am here at the altar, so to speak, and this is, I'm giving you my life. You're, I'm devoted to you now. Now, this is a response of our will, our spirit, to the gospel. The spirit of life then comes into us, regenerates us, brings us to life... All sins washed away and empowers us now to do that. To live for Jesus. So this is a beautiful picture of radical devotion to Jesus. See, Judas betrayed Jesus. Mary expressed extravagant devotion. Judas feigned love for the poor... Mary's love for Jesus was absolutely genuine and greater than any love that she had for others, including the needy. Judas was a thief and stole the money intended for the poor. Mary was a servant. See, she was a giver. John's point is that Mary is honoring Jesus. It's more than, thank you, Jesus. It's more than, can we just give Jesus a round of applause, please? Thank you, Jesus. I mean that that that's cool that's good. We need to be thankful. But guess what? This was a whole lot more than that because it cost her so much. Jesus is more than the expense of anything. Jesus is more than the needs of the needy. Our devotion to Jesus is more is worth more than our personal dignity. All three of these are laid out for us. He's more important than your job? He's more important than any relationship you have. He's more important than any pleasure that you could experience here on earth. Any pleasure of sin even. And what I personally want. Jesus is worth far more than that. Infinitely more. It's more than entertainment. More than your desire for popularity and for people to like you. For social acceptance. Judas is deceptive. Excuse me, Judas' deceptive commitment to Jesus was both convenient for him and self serving. For Mary, it was not convenient, and it was by no means self serving. (laughs) Many times, our introduction in the West, our introduction to the gospel is, our response is, I want just enough of Jesus, please. Nothing too radical or over the top, but just enough. I don't want to wade in. It's not like I want to jump into the deep end. I'm kind of wading in the shallow end, right? We're just kind of toe dipping. Americans, we toe dip before we try something, right? I do that. But Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you can't. You dive in the deep end. It's all or nothing. You don't try God. You don't have just enough of Jesus. He asks for this radical devotion. You know, we might practice extravagant devotion by giving lavishly, by spending time with him. That's what Mary did. Martha, remember serving Mary sitting at his feet? How about worship? You know, we were talking about worship this evening, It's interesting, in the Psalms, it uses this phrase, magnify the Lord with me. When I was a kid, I loved magnifying glasses, just so you know. I used magnifying glasses probably the wrong way. I'd catch the sun in it, and I would find a trail of ants. You can figure out the rest. And I would just wait for the little pop, you know. Oh, that, sorry, You have to get the, yeah, it it takes, it's an art church, just you have to get that magnifying glass just right so it laser focus. But I loved magnifying glasses. Now that I'm old, I use magnifying glasses too, but now it's to read, right? Because I need it magnified. And so the psalmist is saying, magnify the Lord with me. Because you are either. Like Mary, you're going to magnify the Lord or you're going to magnify your problems. We all do this. When we magnify our problems, guess who seems very, very small? God does. Because apparently, God, you can't fix my problem. You must be a small, puny God. Now, we wouldn't say that to him, but church, we believe it too many times. God's love is small. God's power is small. God's patience is small. (laughs) On and on. God is small. But our problems are big. And we are so preoccupied with magnifying our problems. You know how we do it? We talk about it. We talk about how bad it was. You know, have you ever come home, you're asked, well, how was your day? And you said, it was just a really bad day. I just can't imagine Jesus, even if he was persecuted and his mom might ask him, So how did your day go? for him to say, It was just a really bad day, mom. Because bad is relative. When we say it's a bad day, that means, Well, you know what? I'm, don't get me wrong, we can have hard days. But see, bad is relative. Bad. It can be. There can be tragedy in our life, but if it's redemptive, because this is the nature of God, our days are redemptive. I don't care how hard our days are; they're redemptive. And so, I'm just trying to. If if we're going to say they're bad, if we're going to keep going and say, you know what? It, we, my boss said this, and I did this, and I want to listen to that. And if my wife has had a hard day, she doesn't have bad days, by the way. She, if she had a hard day, I want to listen to that, and God wants to listen to that. Okay. But when we start magnifying our problems, they seem so much bigger than what they really are. Now, psalmist has in mind, now you, you need to stop doing that. We need, together, with me, magnify the Lord. It's not like he needs to be magnified. He's already way bigger than our problems. It's just that in our mind, he's way too small, and we need to magnify him so that he at least is approximating the glory that he's worthy of And this is what Mary is doing. She is in this devotion and in this worship and this extravagant love and affection. She's truly worshiping Jesus and magnifying, okay, honoring him, but magnifying him because he's worthy. Church, I need to close with this. All of this takes place in the context of this idea of life. And to be more specific, abundant life. We saw the tragedy that befell Lazarus and how God allowed it, but worked it out for something far greater. Now I want you to imagine hardship, difficulty in your week. And you don't get to see a resurrection you don't get to see how God works through your problems because honestly sometimes it takes days, weeks, months, or years or sometimes you never see it. But when you worship him, when you still magnify God, when you just say, God, you're my everything. I am completely devoted to you. All of my affections belong to you. I'm going to stop busying myself with all of this junk of the world and I'm going to pursue you, God. God. And when we magnify him like that, I'm just going to tell you that there is so much that happens in our hearts. God brings about this abundant life. And in the midst of that abundant life, you're going to have struggle and hardship and even tragedy, God forbid. But it is only to bring about The greater good and God's greater glory. And Mary sees this. Now, she's had a resurrection. But what if you don't? Would you still be willing to do this like Mary is? In the face of struggle and hardship, would you still be willing to do this? Would you still be willing to magnify God? That's the challenge for us tonight. This is the lifestyle that God invites us to. It's at the heart of the gospel. The sweet smelling aroma of life. In me. That now connects me with God. And I want to magnify him. Regardless of what's going on. And church. Don't get me wrong. That is hard. That is so hard. In the midst of tragedy. To magnify God. To honor him to express complete sold out devotion to him but that's our example here no matter the cost no matter how undignified it might seem no matter what you do you are going to live in a way that people step back and say oh my goodness well that's like radical no honestly that's just normal christianity normal christianity Church, can you just stand with me right now? If the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart as we were going through John 12, allow Him right and Just respond to this word. If you're going through a struggle and you just need to magnify God instead of the problem, just do that right now. Right now. Let's just recommit, resurrender that devotion to Jesus. Let this story captivate our heart father we just do that right now you're so good you're so worthy of our affections you're so worthy of all of our praise forgive us when we have made so much about our problems and so little of you i just ask you father not only forgive us but change our hearts change our perspective right now so like mary no matter the cost We are sold out for you. We're breaking open that alabaster jar right now, God. And we are radically committing ourselves to you. Because Jesus, you are our everything. Seal these truths in our hearts. God, show us this week how we can walk this out in a way that is so beautiful and truly glorifies you. In Jesus' name.